everyone. Welcome to the African American Report Podcast, a unique podcast and format where each episode is a lesson from each season of the semester where we detail the diverse experiences of African Americans in sport. In this episode, we feature a conversation with Dr. Billy Hawkins, sociology and sports professor at the University of Houston and author of New Plantation, Black Athletes, College Sports, and Predominantly White NCAA Institutions. Hello, everyone. My name is Langston Clark, and I'm here with Dr. Billy Hawkins, who is a professor at the University of Houston. Hawkins, how are you doing today? Glad to be here. Can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do as a professor and some of your research? Billy Hawkins, I've been a professor, you know, for quite a while. I started out at Northern Illinois University after I received my doctorate from the University of Iowa in sports sociology or cultural studies of sport. I taught at the University of Georgia for 20 years in the Department of Kinesiology, trying to get an understanding of, you know, not only human movement, but much more in the context of sport, you know, and my research interest has been around collegiate athletics and more specifically black males experience at predominantly white campuses has been bulk of what I've done at the University of Houston now. I've been here for, this is my sixth year, but I'm doing similar things, teaching sports sociology courses, diversity courses, and courses uh, around issues of governance and, and intercollegiate athletics. I met you a few years ago, a few times, because my advisor, Dr. Harrison, and you all are in some of the same circles. If you could talk about the importance of your own family tree and who are the people, who are the scholars that you have mentored? Could you talk about how you mentor? I have a great opportunity of working with some phenomenal students in my career, dating back to Matt Wilson, who probably was one of the first students that looked at collegiate coaching and salaries. Matt has gone on and done some great things. He's still doing some great things. Former athlete himself, Rob Zulo, I can't name, you know, some of the recent ones, Joseph Cooper, phenomenal. Akila Frenzy is another outstanding, you know, not only former student athlete, but also outstanding scholar. One of my most recent ones last year is Aquasia Shaw. She's looking at the Black women experience during the pandemic, Black women athlete experience during the pandemic. I'm missing some, but, you know, I've had an opportunity to mentor. And I think my approach is somewhat solid in the sense that I see what they bring to the table with their interests. And I'm, I'm, you know, have been a mentor that hasn't tried to shape them and to make them into my own image and likeness. You know, none of that. You know, I, I try to help them to find their own voice. And that's what it's all about is finding their space and their voice and being able to articulate that and contribute or add to what is being said. One of the things I share with students today is it's as if you're coming into a conversation and it's your responsibility to add to that conversation. And you can't add my voice, but you have a voice. You have something to contribute. And I want to help you to hone that and carry the conversation a little further along. I think that's great because I was a student athlete in high school, but I wasn't enough to play college sports. And I think people don't realize that you can have a career in sports that's not you being an athlete and that if you have an interest in athletics intellectually, that you can still make a career out of it. And so I just I want the audience to know that Dr. Hawkins and his tree of students are examples of that in some cases. At some point, you're not you're not able to play sports anymore. We all reach that point, but you can still have a career in it where you get to engage in conversation with other people that like sports. It's just a different to me in some ways, it's just a different type of barbershop conversation about sports. And in some ways, it's very similar. I want to talk specifically today a little bit about your book, The, the New Plantation. 
And I know that it was written in like, was it 2010 is when it got published. And we're, we're like 12 years later. I feel like this joint got written like last year though. That's what it seems like. And I just want to get your thoughts on the book. What's the genesis of the book and maybe some of the key points that you talk about, because the analogy of collegiate athletics being a plantation has been a narrative that's been around for a while. But I think you add some nuance and some details beyond what we typically just think about student athletes just not getting paid, which is a huge issue. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write the book and what is the concept or the idea of the new plantation? You know, I uh, many pounds ago, I played collegiate basketball at a small private school. And it was interesting. I grew up in the South, so race has always been uh, central to, to my experience. And I've always been one of those individuals that sort of see the racial dynamics in all of my social interactions. So I started out very young playing sports, as most people have done their life. And I was able to, I went into the military and played sport there. But I um, began to look at it when I played collegiate sport. I played at a private small school in Florida. And the only athletes there, only Blacks that were there were athletes at this school. And it was about 500 students, right? And so I began to see those dynamics of isolation, social isolation, racial isolation, alienation that goes on economics, obviously, all of us was from pretty similar backgrounds, working class families, so on and so forth, whereas the white students weren't, you know, obviously. From there, I went on to get my master's at La Crosse, Wisconsin, and worked in athletics. And then at Iowa, I began to see it even more when I worked in athletics there, the dynamics, because interestingly enough, a lot of the black male athletes that were on campus were athletes, you know, even though this was, you know, a prestigious institution, you know, in the Big Ten. So I began to notice this pattern and and I, as I work with athletes, I noticed that there was this migration of, of athletes from Los Angeles, from Houston, from Florida, coming to the small city of our city. And I always thought that was phenomenal of, you know, how, how are they adjusting? As I was doing my graduate work, I began to look at, you know, taking classes in anthropology, history, African American studies. I began to look a little bit more deeper into how this replicated colonial system. My, my first premise in, in understanding is that America is a colonial state. It's a, a plantation itself, a plantation state. So even though we've had what's considered Emancipation Proclamation, I truly believe that that Emancipation Proclamation, I, it just allowed other institutions to operate in that same manner or same practice. OK, a lot of times, as you said, when we think about the plantation, we think about the brutality of that system. And we ought to because it was a brutal system, physically brutal system. But there were other things that were involved in there. When you talk about the alienation, you, you think about the social isolation, you think about how it, uh, individuals were grouped together that couldn't speak the same languages. I noticed this on college campus where you had individuals from the East Coast, West Coast, South, all of those individuals coming together and they were able to come together and create a, some cohesion. I think it was interesting at, at looking at, you know, not the, the economic factor too, obviously, which is the backbone of a any plantation institution is this idea of economic exploitation. And that's the root of what's going on now. All right. When you talk about the, the, this, this plantation analogy, but also when you think about this plantation system, you have to think about the political silence or the slaves didn't have a political force, athletes, believe it or not, but collectively, you know, even though they've tried to unite, they collectively still do not have it. Was they very fragmented? And for legitimate reasons, I think it is by design. So all of those things, like experience and witnessing this, my experience in studying this and, you know, obviously working with athletes and talk, you know, they're talking about their frustration and dealing with the system. All of this came out and came into the writing of that 
the book. And believe it or not, it was my dissertation, which was way back in 1996. So to, to put a, a real time stamp on the, the book obviously came out a, a lot later. I want to talk about this financial piece because you have chapter four is operating in the black financially on the back of the black athletic body. And can you talk about how the system of exploitation for black athletes at PWIs has been able to manage? Because I had never heard the idea of the Emancipation Proclamation really being a segue to a different type of institutional slavery. And I'm wondering how institutions, predominantly white institutions, and maybe some other institutions where Black athletes play sports, how does that segue happen? Because that's the first time I've heard it put like that. I agree. I'm just wondering if you can put more details with that. Yeah, I, I think, again, going back to this idea that American is a plantation state is when, whenever individuals aren't allowed freedom of expression or self-determination, they're in a colonized situation. And whenever they're not valued for their, their worth, their true worth, they're in this type of colonial situation. So so then I think that wherever you are, whether you're in higher education, you know, whether you're in corporate America, you're in a colonial situation, a colonial relationship, because you're not necessarily being compensated for your worth, okay? So this is where I see this emancipation being birthed into other forms of plantation or colonial relationships. Now, when you look at the Black athlete specifically and how their talent undergirds this multi-billion dollar operation, one of the things that is, is obvious, I was watching the college football playoffs, I don't know if you watched it either, when you look at Alabama, you know, 60% of their team, 67% of their team is Black, 100% of their offense is, is Black. Same thing with Georgia. Georgia has 58%, I think, is is African-American male. And obviously, 100% of their defense, starting defense. So we see how they undergird this huge operation of college football with basketball. It's pretty similar. You know, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar, multi-billion dollar operation. And I think it's interesting when you think of how there is this tagline about over 480,000 athletes will go pro and something else. So we're talking about this vast, or 500,000 now, when you think about collegiate athletes. Well, and you think about the NCAA, 90% of their income, their revenue comes from the, the NCAA tournament. 90%, 90% of their budget. Okay. And we're talking about less than 1% of that 500,000 generate that revenue. When you talk about those 65, whatever those those numbers are, basically it's the final four, whoever those, those numbers are. And of that 1%, over 60% of black males. All right. So we're talking about how, again, once again, African-American males are undergirding or being the drivers of this economy. And we see a huge wealth transfer, okay, because they're not necessarily being compensated for it. Maybe now with, you know, have the opportunity with Neil, which I guess we'll talk about later, but this is one of the main reasons when I talk about this plantation system and especially with this economic exploitation where we see black labor, black athletic labor driving this this industry being sort of the main contributors of this, this industry and not necessarily benefiting. Likewise, when you talk about graduating, obviously black males are graduating more than their counterparts. So this is where some of the discrepancies exist. I've had this debate with a few friends. I look at the Ivy League schools. Harvard's endowment is probably like $40 billion, something like that, some crazy number. But they don't have a prominent athletic team, 
but they still have crazy money. So the question I have is, if we took the athletic money away from the power five schools, how much would it really hurt their bottom line? And is it part of what I'm saying? Are they laundering that money from athletics in a way? You know what I'm saying? To make it seem like, oh, we don't really get that much from them, but it's all just circles in athletics, but somehow they're still benefiting from the labor because they make it seem like it's all opportunity for the athletes and that there's not as much benefit from for the institution. Because I get this argument with my homeboy. He's like, yo, if you look at the numbers, you know, most athletic departments operate, was it in the red, right? They don't make a profit. But then if they weren't making a profit, why would they keep having athletics? So I'm wondering, could you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, dealing with the Harvard issue and, and many of those Ivy League schools, you, you have to look at their history. And there's been a lot of research on it and, and that, that have come out about how they were, how they accumulated that wealth through either slave labor or being active in the slave trade. So they were slave traders, basically, you know, when you talk about the originators of, the, or the originators of this these, these institutions. So they accumulated coffers when you talk about how they build their institutional wealth. Now, when you look at some of the Power Five institutions, they can exist without athletics. A bit, you know, we have Big Ten, SEC schools. They can exist without because athletic budget is a small budget. Because you know, the, the average university budget is around three to four billion dollars when you talk about those institutions. So they're huge budgets. So the, when you look at the athletic budget of thirty million, it's only a fraction. Medical school budgets are a lot higher than those. But the thing that athletics add is a, a lot of social capital and cultural capital. It stimulates and, you know, missions when you talk about revenue students wanting to, co- just to go to the, that institution, but also relationships, sponsorships, donors. Those are things that individuals don't necessarily factor in. Visibility, a lot of the visibility. I remember I served in Trinidad. I worked as a visiting professor there and I saw some Georgia paraphernalia on a Trinidadian. I'm like, you know, this is kind of wild, but, you know, these schools have this international exposure and fanship, fandom that's global because of athletics. And, and I come to find out that obviously the SEC was, they recruit heavily in, in the Caribbean down there, obviously Trinidad. So these schools have this reach, this global reach, a lot of times through their, their athletic programs, which again contributes to the visibility of the institution, the reputation of the institution. And indirectly, I believe it contributes to their bottom line. So it's, it's the French benefits of athletics. Yes. Yeah. So yes. the, the numbers, like that $30 million budget doesn't really tell the whole story of, of just how valuable athletics is to the institutions. You mentioned a little bit earlier the NIL and how, how do you think name, image and likeness is going to affect this idea or this notion that the university or athletics is a plantation. Is it still is it still a plantation if the athletes can get paid? And if so, why? You know, there were Bill Roden, um, excuse me, Bill Roden wrote about, I think his name was Charles Smith, a slave that was able to generate considerable amount of money, so much that he bought his freedom. And I think at, at times he made loans to his former um, slave owner. I think the plantation system will remain. Athletes will be able to, you know, make some money from some endorsement. And we see this now when, when you talk about the different types of endorsement that athletes are making. I think it's a phenomenal opportunity for some. Some of it is small potatoes concerned to their value. Again, we got to talk about this idea of, you know, when we talk about name, image, and likeness, one L is still missing. 
when we talk about this idea of compensation, and that's labor, because that's the main key that's not being compensated. And universities don't want to stay away from compensating athletes for their labor costs. They'll start getting into salaries similar to professional athletes, right? If you were to pay them for the value of their labor. But yet, we're making progress with Neil, right? This name, image, and likeness. And so we're seeing athletes signing these. Some of them are signed national endorsements. Some of them are signed with sport paraphernalia companies. So I think it is a start in eradicating or reducing this wealth transfer that's taking place. The piece that I, I don't see, and I've looked at, you know, there's been 40 some states that have created some neo legislation. 20 of them passed in this past July. Some of them came online this, this January. I think it's interesting that when you look at some of the major themes, obviously economic compensation, you know, not restricting athletes from being compensated. But there isn't much that talks about political voice, having a political say. So that's one key area. There are some that say athletes can be a part of committee oversight, these oversight committees that they're creating to look at how NIL is, is being implemented within their state. But that's the only one. I think there are two states. Well, there's one federal one that's through Senator Booker, his bill that is has been proposed. It looks at compensating athletes based on their labor. Okay, 50% of the revenue after expenses go to athletes. I'm like, well, if that get passed, you know, that we're really making progress. The state of Georgia has an interesting one, too, when you look at compensating athletes for their labor, when they talk about pooling the revenue together and athletes getting um, paid for that pool of, of revenue that's generated, especially for post-play. Talk about making it to playoffs, making it to any type of tournament when there's a revenue that's being compensated. So those are some ways that Neil is pushing or uh, minimizing this wealth transfer. And I think once we begin to see where athletes are gaining some type of political voice, political say, a much more political say, and how their lives are being governed, I think that will definitely at least minimize this, this, this whole notion of a colonial state or plantation system. So I'm, I'm going to say something that might be slightly controversial. We, we know that the athletes that benefit the most from Black athlete labor are the white athletes in the NCAA who play the... Uh, the Olympic sports, because they don't generate any revenue, it's almost like I could see a situation where there's a desire for a type of equality where if, you know, the football players are getting paid, everyone should get paid. But in some ways that becomes like a pimp situation because the other athletes, they're not make, they're not bringing any, their labor does not bring in any money, but the athletes who are playing football, which is probably the most dangerous sport, would get some of their value of their labor siphoned off. So I'm just wondering, how do we negotiate, negotiate that particularly if women's athletics won't probably is not going to pull in the same type of money. Again, where I wrote a segment in there about driving Miss Daisy, where here we have black athletes once again undergirding these non-revenue generating sports that are obviously, think about the, definitely the women's sports, they're predominantly white women that are competing. And when you think about revenue generating sports or non-revenue generating sports, they're probably what we consider elite or Olympic level sports where there is a low percentage of black participating, unfortunately. So uh, it's interesting that, yes, Black males will be being used again to help individuals, support individuals that, believe it or not, if you were to look at socioeconomic class, socioeconomic breakdown of those sports, needed the least. You know, I'm looking at, think about those individuals that have benefited from Neil. I'm looking at the first Neil contract was two the two twins out of uh, Fresno State. You know, they were the first one. I'm like, what? You know, how, how the two white women, I'm not necessarily knocking it, but it's interesting to me that they they would be 
the first ones to get a Neil endorsement. And since then, obviously, there have been other blacks. I think there are going to be a lot of talk about non-revenue generating sport athletes compensating or benefiting from the exposure of that university that has been obtained through the revenue generating sports of basketball and football, you know, if, if I made that clear. So the visibility of those programs hinges on those, those sports, those revenue generating sports. So again, it's like another way, it's like the value of the black athletes playing sports isn't necessarily on the spreadsheet because it you wouldn't know about the other sports if it wasn't for the black athletes playing football and basketball. So the last question, because I know you have class is what advice do you have for students, both athletes and non-athletes in terms of their success in college and then in their career afterwards? I think if, you know, definitely if you're looking at sport as this vehicle, make obviously reading as much as you can about the history, the development, not only from the athletic side, but the business side as well of how things, definitely we talk about organizations and how they emerge, it's different practices, but but definitely you have to find your, your particular space in there and see how you're going to contribute some of the things where you want to make an impact and how you want to make a difference. I think having a social justice orientation is paramount. Not that looking for you to solve all the world problems, but when you talk about a social justice impact, you're talking about having race, class, gender, whatever the one of the marginalized positions are, issues are at the center of what you're doing, your advocacy, your research and teaching, all your work. If you're thinking about working in this industry, well, you're trying to make it better, you're trying to make it whatever situation you're going in, if it's administration, if it's coaching with this research, using your research to try to make or to add to, again, the conversation and to make lives better, the sporting experience better. Uh, I challenge my students that I'm working with every day is to, if you're coaching, especially youth sport, whatever the case may be, you're trying to make it a a better space, a much more empowering space for individuals, a much more what is considered emancipatory structure where individuals are able to free and be able to live out their full potentials. Okay, so and, and sport can do that. What has the potential to do that if it's done right. Dr. Hawkins, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you for joining today's class. If you learned from and like what you heard, please leave a review, give the class five stars, or donate to our Patreon. A link can be found in the show notes. In our next class, we feature another 50 for 50 conversation with Dr. Morgan Jones, Senior Manager for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging Strategy at Spurs Sports and Entertainment. 